I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the show, we continue our coverage of Israel-Palestine, the Hamas attack of October 7th, 2023, and the bombing of Gaza by Israel in retaliation. This time, we have the esteemed scholar of Middle Eastern history from UCLA, Professor James L. Gelvin, author of the book, The Israel-Palestine Conflict, A History. Amongst many other books I should mention, he is a rather noted scholar on the region. And I have to say, I'm very glad he was able to offer me his time in this hour-long conversation that covers a lot of ground, folks. We cover really the history of the Israel-Palestine issue, the clash of nationalisms, as he calls it. He argues that this issue is not one related to religious war or a dispute going back to biblical times. We'll also be discussing the Hamas attack, the bombing of Gaza, conditions on the ground in Gaza, U.S. foreign policy, and so, so much more. Professor Gelvin is a font of knowledge, and I hope you'll find this conversation enlightening and educational. So, without any further ado, let's get to it with Professor James Gelvin. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very, very happy to be speaking with. I consider him a very esteemed scholar uh, of Middle Eastern history. He's been a member of the faculty at the Department of History at the University of California, Los Angeles, and he's written a number of books on Middle East history. Uh, Professor James L. Galvin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you, under the circumstances, of course. Right. Uh, so I... I don't want to start necessarily just with uh, the attack of October 7th and now the bombing that we're seeing in Gaza, Gaza, both of which are very tragic, but more generally uh, the origins of the Israel-Palestine issue or question or conflict, uh, because I think a lot of people will say this is about religion, it goes back to biblical times, and I think you're one of the academics, the, the scholars who has taken issue with that. And I, I tend to be sympathetic with your analysis. So what is this conflict really about at the end of the day? It's a clash of nationalisms. The Israel-Palestine conflict is the longest running nationalist conflict uh, right now. 
Uh, thank you, Northern Ireland, for settling what you settled. Um, but you're absolutely right. The conflict does not go back to time immemorial. It does not go, don't go back to uh, the foundations of religions. It doesn't go back to a clash of religions or a clash of civilizations. It's actually a clash of nationalisms. And nationalisms are a modern phenomenon. Uh, you have two groups, uh, Zionists in Israel, uh, who believe in a Jewish nationalism, and Palestinian nationalists, who, of course, believe in a Palestinian nationalism, uh, who uh, want to set up shop, want to govern uh, the same uh, the same hunk of territory, which stretches between uh, the Mediterranean coast and the Jordan River. Uh, the Jews became nationalized in the 19th century. Uh, many of them uh, were uh, inhibited from joining uh, other nations, so some of them actually uh, developed a nationalism of their own because they were othered by other nationalisms. Um, let me just say one thing, though, uh, about that, that that was a minority view, a very small minority view. Um, most Jews, for example, lived in, uh, in the 19th century in the Russian Empire, and about 20% of them decided just to decamp and to go elsewhere, mostly to the United States. Uh, Palestine wasn't even on their agenda. Um, in addition to that, Jews, you know, some Jews around the world wanted to participate in the nations in which they lived and a hyphenated identity like Austrian Jewish or something along those lines. So um, uh, and still others you know, joined movements like Marxist movements or trade union movements or, or things like that. So we, we're talking about a very small group of people who actually thought that it would be a good idea to go uh, go to Palestine. Uh, and set up shop there. Now, as a result of expanded immigration, particularly on the eve of World War II, a Palestinian nationalism began to develop a mass roots. Uh, Palestinian displacement was such that uh, basically they viewed themselves as constituting uh, a people separate from uh, the uh, Jewish community on the one hand, but also the development of Palestine was different from the development of, let's say, Syria or Lebanon or any of these other places. So a distinct Palestinian identity was able to emerge at this time. If we could delve into that a little bit more, I know over the years uh, there have been people that have said that there are no Palestinians or they're illegitimate because uh, their national identity comes after Zionism. And of course, I mentioned to you in an email to you, I will still have people bring up to me this book uh, from Time Immemorial by Joan Peters, which sort of claims that, you know, there were no Palestinians. Uh, these were just people who had recently immigrated uh, to that area. Um, how do you push back on those claims? Well, what I tell my students is that all nationalisms are true and all nationalisms are false. They're true in that they create nations where nations had not existed before. They're false in that they create nations where nations had not been, existed before. In other words, the uh, way in which you judge a nationalism is not how true or false it is, but whether it succeeds or it doesn't succeed. And it succeeds because it, uh, for factors that are extraneous to the nationalism. For example, uh, whether it receives outside support, whether it's militarily capable, whether uh, it's got a diaspora that will support it. Uh, so what we see in the case of both Zionism and Palestinian nationalism is the same foundations. Uh, and just because one came later than the other doesn't mean that one is more legitimate than the other. Hell, I mean, Jewish nationalism came on part as a result of European anti-Semitism. If you're going to say that Palestinian nationalism is uh, illegitimate because it came after and as a result of Zionist uh, colonization, then what you're going to say is that you know Jewish uh, that uh, European anti-Semitism and European nationalisms are more legitimate than Zionism, uh, and that would be perverse to do that. So what we have to do is we have to take these nationalisms at face value. They exist, and so therefore they really are. I was going to say as well. I know a lot of people frame the the foundation of Israel as this needed to happen because of the Holocaust. I was wondering how you respond to uh, that because I know you have thoughts on that. I've heard you talk about it in other interviews. Yeah, um, 
Basically, Obama went to Israel and uh, said that uh, you know the Jewish people deserve the state because of the Holocaust. And Benjamin Netanyahu said that no, that's that's not the reason for Israel. The reason for Israel is that we this is our land. We were here before. We are the indigenous inhabitants of of, of Palestine. And so, therefore, we have a right to it. Now, that's, a, as far as I'm concerned, a very slender reed in which to hang a nation. Uh, it's not easy to um, uh, posit that, you know, uh, because we were here a while ago uh, and had to were forced to decamp, that we deserve to be back there and set up a nation state, actually, uh, in that. So uh, the Holocaust was, of course, an extraordinarily tragic event. Um, but in no way do even Israelis use that as legitimation for the establishment of the state of Israel. Could you talk a little bit more about, um, I guess, both the the claims that Palestinians and Israelis will make uh, for their national identities and their nationalisms? Well, both claim to have ancient roots there. Both claim, and but, but this is, of course, what nationalisms do. I mean, the Greeks today are uh, ethnically not similar to the Greeks who lived there under Pericles, who lived in Greece under the Pericles. Uh, and yet, you know, basically they claim to, uh, uh, to trace their roots going all the way back to Pericles and the golden age of Athens and that sort of stuff and so on and so forth. I don't want to pick on the Greeks. The French do it as well with our ancestors, the Gauls. You know, everybody does it except settler colonial states really can't do it like the United States. So therefore, you know, we have a very, very different understanding about our past, uh, which we do trace back to Jamestown and, and uh, Plymouth anyway. So uh, the claims of each of the peoples are, are you know, uh, the same legitimacy. Uh, they're, they're bogus. Um, but, you know, basically they root them in, in the same way that all nationalisms root these claims. I also was wondering if you could speak uh, briefly about uh, 1948, what happens in 48, uh, because it's very different for the Israelis and, and the Palestinians. You know, the Palestinians will talk about the Nakba, uh, the Israeli side will talk about, you know, it, it was the time of independence. So uh, could you speak to that? What's the issue there? Well, the issue is that many of the issues that we still live with today, for example, the fate of Jerusalem, um, uh, the right of return, were established in 1948. Uh, whether or not the Palestinians can go back to their homes, for example, which is the right of return. Um, what happened in 1948 was that the British were given the mandate for Palestine from the League of Nations, meaning that uh, the League of Nations gave British the right to uh, establish administration, an administration in Palestine with the idea that at some point this would become independent. Uh, the problem was is that the British were unable to actually get the two communities to coexist. And so they dumped the case back on, on the United Nations, the successor organization of the League of Nations. Uh, and uh, in 1948, two things happened. In 1948, the UN voted to establish a state of Israel and war broke out. Uh, for the first part of the war was a civil war between the indigenous inhabitants of Palestine and the Zionists. The second part of the war was an invasion uh, from the outside of Arab states, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, etc. Now, the thing that's important is that starting in 1948 and continuing all the way to 1993, the world chose to look at the conflict as one between Arabs and Israelis, not between Palestinians and Zionists, but between Arabs and Israelis. And they thought that, okay, all we have to do is get Israel to sign a peace treaty with Egypt or Syria to sign a peace treaty with Israel, and the whole situation would, 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 would end. Okay, I think what we've seen in the last couple of days is that uh, the situation will not end no matter how many normalization agreements you have and how many you know, uh, peace treaties you have with Arab neighbors, uh, that the real issue goes back to uh, Israel, uh, Israelis and Palestinians. So the two things that you mentioned actually happened in 1948. You had the establishment of the state of Israel, uh, and the borders of the state of Israel were the final armistice lines. You also had the uh, flight of 720,000 Palestinians uh, who were trapped behind armistice lines. And there's been all sorts of uh, controversy about why they fled. 
but I think most historians now, particularly the, a group called the New Historians of Israel, have pretty much demonstrated that there were three major reasons why they fled. Some were terrorized into fleeing, and there were deliberate acts of terrorism. And as Lenin said, the purpose of terrorism is to terrorize. Um, some were uh, expelled. Uh, Operation Hiram, for example, into Galilee region, expelled Palestinians. And then finally, um, many Palestinians felt that it was a reasonable thing to do to get out of a war zone. It's dangerous in there. Uh, you see now that Palestinians are fleeing from North Gaza into South Gaza. So uh, this is the reasons for the flight. Now, the problem has been that these refugees is a problem that has never been resolved. Some of them ended up in the Arab world. Some of them ended up in camps. Some of them ended up in those with education or with money, ended up in Europe or North America. But still, this is an issue that has to be resolved. And so we see actually two sets of issues that emerged, one in 1948 and one set in 1967. Things like Jerusalem and the right of return emerges in um, the uh, 1948. Uh, the boundaries and security uh, emerge in 1967. Before we get into the events of October 7th, uh, is there anything else? Because I, I feel like you can't know the present unless you know the past. And I know we have to condense a lot of history for the, the sake mm -hmm. of this recording and conversation. But in between 1948 and now, what do you think are some of the key points people have to understand or the key events historically that people have to understand if they're not familiar with the region? I think a key event was 1967, the Six-Day War, um, that uh, Israel was able to conquer large amounts of territory, the Sinai Peninsula, for example, the Golan Heights, a small area of Jordan, um, uh, Jerusalem, etc. And um, there are a couple of important things about that. Number one, uh, that uh, the world was looking at the conflict of one between Israel and the Arab states, so it became one of land for peace. And so if you look at the peace treaties that Israel has signed, for example, with Egypt, it traded off its uh, the Sinai Peninsula for a peace treaty with Israel, uh, with uh, Egypt. Uh, that's one of the things that came out. But the other thing that came out of the 1967 war uh, was the idea on the part of the Palestinians that the Arab states were not going to do it for us and we have to do it ourselves. And so we see the emergence of a modern nationalist movement, the, mil uh, the military wing of the Palestine Liberation Organization, uh, the guerrilla groups that began to fight. And there's a parallel between what happened then and what's happening now. Uh, what happened then was the idea that we have to commit acts of terrorism in order to keep the Palestine issue alive. And that was key to what's going on now, which is that the world was losing sight of the fact that the Palestinians are still, the Palestinian issue is still on the table. And so Hamas chose to strike. I'm somebody who believes in that terror is not just blind violence, that there's an instrumental use of terrorism. It's an awful thing. But you know there are three ways in which the Palestinians have used terrorism in the past. Number one, three reasons for it. Number one, to keep the Palestinian issue on the front burner. Number two, to sabotage any agreement that does not address Palestinian concerns. And number three, to score points against rival factions in the Palestinian national movement. Now, all three were at play in uh, the uh, uh, current situation. Uh, Israel was looking to normalize its relations with um, uh, Arab states. Uh, the Arab states were willing to put uh, the Palestine issue on the back burner. Um, there were uh, talks, uh, talk about uh, Saudi Arabia normalizing relations and the fine print had to be worked out. Uh, and uh, if Saudi Arabia did normalize relations with um, uh, uh, Israel, uh, that would boost uh, the Palestinian Authority, which rules in the West Bank, not in Gaza, but in the West Bank, uh, because Saudi Arabia, of course, hates Hamas. Uh, Hamas presents a different way in which you mix politics and religion from the way that makes Saudi Arabia comfortable. So uh, all these three factors were on, in play going all the way back to 1967 and are at play now. I, I mean, uh, putting it in, in very simple and crude terms, it, I, I feel like this October 7th attack was Hamas's way of saying do we have your attention now on the Palestine issue? 
That is one of the reasons, that's certainly one of the reasons why why they did it now. I mean, the other, there, people have floated all sorts of ideas, and we don't really know, frankly. I mean, they floated the ideas that Israel is now seen as vulnerable because troops have been moved away from Gaza towards the West Bank because of the uh, incitement that's, being, that's taking place in the West Bank, uh, that Israel society is divided as it has not been divided before because of the what they call the judicial coup. I mean, all these things are at play. But I think what you said was probably the most important issue, which is the fact that uh, the Palestinians or, or Hamas wanted to put the issue back on the front burner again, uh, wanted to see what it could do in order to make the world uh, understand that the Palestinian issue would not go away. And we see what's going on. The, the um, you know, uh, over the most recent period, we see not only Egypt and Jordan with relations with, with Israel, but we see the UAE and Bahrain and, um, you know, uh, Sudan and Morocco establish uh, normalization with Israel uh, and Saudi Arabia perhaps having normalization with uh, Israel in the near future. And then all of a sudden Hamas does this. Israel does what Hamas anticipated it would do which was react with an overwhelming amount of violence. Uh, you have to remember what Gaza is. Gaza is a small place that's densely inhabited, one of the most densely inhabited places on earth. Half the population is under the age of 18. So there is no way that the Israelis are going to be able to attack Gaza without killing large numbers of children. Okay. So this, of course, has infuriated the Arab street and has made it impossible for uh, other nations to sign on to normalization agreements, other Arab nations to sign on to normalization agreements, particularly Saudi Arabia. I was going to say that's a good segue into the conditions in Gaza and giving a picture of what Gaza is. I don't think people realize this is a strip of land that is six miles wide and 25 miles long. It's very, very small. And as you said, it's very densely populated. What do we know of conditions on the ground in Gaza uh, the levels of poverty, things of that nature. Well, the uh, Hamas took over Gaza in 2007, and the, uh, the Israelis and also the Egyptians immediately slapped on a blockade. Uh, and what that means is that nothing goes in or out of uh, Gaza without the permission of one of the two gatekeepers. Uh, so uh, the conditions in Gaza are horrific. The numbers that your listeners should probably keep in mind are 60 to 65. That's the number of unemployed, uh, 60 to 65 percent. That's the number of unemployed there is in Gaza. That is the number of people below the poverty level. That is the number of people who are few, food insecure. Gaza depends on Israel for water. It depends on Israel for fuel. fuel. It depends on Israel for um, electricity. They're hooked into the Israeli electrical grid. So fundamentally, uh, Israel has had fingertip control over Gaza, what goes in, what, what doesn't go in. Um, the Gazans have resorted to tunnels, both for humanitarian uh, uh, stuff and uh, for uh, uh, weapons, actually, as well. Um, but you can't help but feel that the part of the population that's being held hostage is that 50% of the population that, you know, basically is below age to be, to participate in politics at all. Uh, and it's that group of people who are suffering along with people who have, you know, nothing more on their minds than raising a family and trying to keep their head above water. Is there anything else that you can add about Hamas. I've done a few shows talking about Hamas already. It's an Islamist uh, Islamist movement with uh, roots in the mother Muslim Brotherhood. Is there any other uh, key aspects we should note about Hamas? Yeah, there's a couple of things. First of all, having roots in the Muslim Brotherhood, um, Muslim Brotherhoods are, are, exist throughout the Arab world. And basically, they take on a local coloration. So obviously, the local coloration in the case of Palestine, when the Muslim Brotherhood from Egypt first went to Palestine, was in 1936 during the Great Revolt against the British and against the Zionists. Uh, and so the local chapter of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, was embedded in the DNA, the struggle. Okay, uh, But, you know, you look at the Muslim Brotherhood of Tunisia, for example, the Nahda Party, uh, and it was so committed to democracy that after it uh, won power uh, and uh, held power for a, a, a brief period of time, uh, the government resigned, the Nahda government resigned uh, when there was opposition to its policies. 
uh, and they held new elections. So Muslim brotherhoods really, when you say that, really doesn't mean that that much. The other thing that's important is the fact that um, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this is a national nationalist movement, that this is not an Islamic movement, an Islamist movement, in, you know, in uh, a sort of generic sort of like way. It is part and parcel of the um, uh, Palestinian national movement. And as a matter of fact, you can say that there are direct parallels between Hamas and some of the people in the government now of Israel uh, and their forms of Zionism, religious Zionists, for example. Religious Zionists feel that God made a special covenant with the Jewish people. Uh, and that all of Palestine should be under Jewish control because of that covenant. Well, just tweak that a little bit, and Hamas believes that um, uh, Palestine is a religious endowment from God, uh, and that all of Palestine should be under their control, under Palestinian control, because they can't give away a religious endowment any more than the uh, Israelis can defy a covenant with God. So basically, what we have to do is we have to view this within the larger framework of the nationalist struggle that is taking place. Now, nationalist struggles, in this particular case, the nationalist struggle has gotten particularly vicious on both sides. Um, the um, uh, events of October 7th were unspeakable. Um, but the no, nobody is going to bring back is, uh, Israeli children who were butchered by Hamas by killing Palestinian children from the air. I wanted you to be able to comment on this. I know there's a lot of debate about how Hamas got into power. I see a lot of people say, well, they were voted in by a majority 16 so years ago. Uh, but I've also read, you know, that it was actually they, they got in through a plurality of votes. And also, as you mentioned, um, most of the people in Gaza today are under 18. They weren't even alive for that vote. So uh, could you elaborate on all those points? Um and just the discussion about, well, this is the Gazans' fault for voting in uh, Hamas. The, the, can you push back on that point, maybe? Okay. Uh, first of all, Hamas is not a democratic organization. Uh, it is an autocratic organization, and uh, we shouldn't lose sight of that. Um, but uh, under the Oslo Accords, elections were held for something called the Palestinian Authority. And elections were held in uh, 2005 for the president of the Palestinian Authority. And that went to Fatah, a branch of the uh, PLO. Uh, the uh, person who won the election was uh, Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, a year later, there were legislative elections, there was supposed to be a parliament, uh, and uh, Hamas won. Hamas did not run as, as uh, Hamas, it ran as change and reform because basically the leadership of the PLO demonstrated that it was not only sclerotic, but hopelessly corrupt. Uh, and the population of both the West Bank and of the Gaza Strip uh, knew that full well. Uh, they ran, uh, uh, the PLO ran a very, very bad electoral campaign. For example, uh, they sometimes had more than one candidate running in each district. Uh, so Hamas did win. Uh, and that surprised nobody more than Hamas. Uh, they expected to become the loyal opposition in the parliament, uh, but all of a sudden they became uh, the leader of the parliament. Now, the problem was that uh, the immediately after Hamas won, the uh, old powers, outside powers, cut off relations with the uh, Palestinian Authority because Hamas is a terrorist organization by their definition. And so, therefore, uh, the PLO, which ran the Palestinian Authority, the executive branch, uh, decided that what it would have to do is get rid of Hamas. But Hamas struck first, uh, got rid of PLO authority in the uh, Gaza Strip throughout the PLO. It was a bloody but brief civil war that took place uh, and took power at that time. There has not been an election in either the West Bank or the Gaza Strip since. Uh, so uh, basically, neither side is what we would call sort of uh, dysfunctional because of democracy. Uh, both sides are basically uh, run autocratically at the present time. In terms of the conditions in Gaza, I think on the pro-Palestinian end, uh, people will say uh, this is an open air prison and it's all due to Israel. And then on the Israeli side or the pro-Israeli side, we'll hear uh, you know, this is all Hamas is doing. It's Hamas should have should be investing in infrastructure in Gaza. Uh, where do you stand on on these issues? And and what would you say to people that are unfamiliar uh, 
with Gaza? How should they be thinking about it? How can Gaza invest in infrastructure? I mean, basically, the border is controlled by somebody else. The airspace is controlled by somebody else. You know, the electrical grid is controlled on by somebody else. The water supply is controlled by somebody else. I mean, the point is, is that, you know, basically, is the Hamas government corrupt? You bet it is. But fundamentally, did they have a chance of being able to uh, actually invest in infrastructure and build something for the Gazan people? No, uh, that was you know precluded. Uh, to this very day, the United Nations runs a lot of the uh, educational system and so on and so forth, uh, gives humanitarian assistance and so on uh, to the population of uh, the uh, Gaza Strip. Uh, so that uh, basically it's, it's, as I said, extraordinarily impoverished and without you know, a, a possibility of actually development. One thing that, you know, people bring up is, you know, the Israelis, when they built settlements in Gaza, which they abandoned, um, they left behind these greenhouses. And, you know, the Palestinians, being Palestinians, just smashed the greenhouses out of anger. Well, the problem with the greenhouses was that when somebody else controls your border, you can't export any of the flowers and any of the other things that were being grown in the greenhouses. So fundamentally, they were they were worthless to the Palestinian economy. So yeah, people were angry and people smashed the greenhouses, but there was really no no reason why they should keep them. You mentioned uh, the religious Zionists, and you know, on this show, I've covered figures like Itamar Ben Giver, who I believe is out when it comes to this uh, emergency government that's been formed with Netanyahu and uh, Benny Gantz. Uh, but you also have figures like. Uh, Bezalel Smotrich of the Religious Zionism Party. Could you talk about uh, what these sort of extreme religious Zionists are doing, especially in places like the West Bank, and why this is such a point of real outrage for Palestinians? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it basically does play a very important role what's what's going on because of the level of violence uh, that is there on the West Bank at the present time. Uh, a lot of it sort of stoked by the religious Zionist parties. Uh, there have been attacks on, on Palestinian villages, for example, the burning of Palestinian cars and uh, similar sort of things. The murder of Palestinians has taken place. Um, there was a transfer of troops from the Gaza border to the West Bank border because of the incitement that's been taking place. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, basically, uh, the uh, Israeli army was not prepared for what happened on October 7th uh, in Gaza. So uh, what's going on is that you have people who are not willing to compromise, who have not or have not accepted the Oslo Accord, do not want to sit down and talk about abandoning settlements or about um, uh, anything that would allow uh, Palestinians uh, some sort of shared ownership of Jerusalem. Uh, so again, they look at this as a covenant that have, they have with God. And so what they're trying to do right now is stoke the flame as much as possible. And uh, they, their aim, is, as they stated, is to annex the West Bank. Now, what happens to the Palestinian people? Well, they're pretty vague on that. Um, are you going to see a uh, one-state solution in which Palestinians participate side by side with Israelis in the political process? Of course you're not. Uh, so the choices actually are an apartheid state, if that occurs, or uh, the expulsion, a mass expulsion of Palestinians again. I wanted to ask you, because this is a question that has come up in some of the other interviews I've done, especially with um, uh, Professor Stephen Walt. Is there a culpability when it comes to uh, U.S. foreign policy in the problems we're seeing arise now? I mean, not to put it crudely, but have in some ways, have we kicked the can down the road on the Israel-Palestine issue? Oh, we've definitely kicked the can down the road. I mean, basically, there was this one brief period at the end of the Cold War when it looked like, you know, all these problems could be solved, all ethnic disputes. Remember the end of history discussion um, that, you know, Francis Fukuyama, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's the whole idea that now that the Cold War is over, we're going to live a much more boring life, a safer life, but a much more boring life because conflict will be over and that sort of stuff as well. Well, you know, the Oslo Accord was born at the end of at, uh, at the end of the Cold War. And part of the reason was, is that um, the flames of the conflict were stoked by both uh, adversaries in the Cold War at various times. 
Uh, and uh, the end of the Soviet Union meant that, uh, number one, the Israelis were looking forward to a world that was globalized, a world in which they could participate in trade with the Arab world. And uh, the Palestinians had lost their biggest backer, uh, the Soviet Union. So the two sides got together and there was a great deal of optimism uh, that Oslo could work. But things very, very quickly broke down. And uh, except for a few wheel spinnings that took place, the establishment of the Palestinian Authority, the division of Palestine and uh, of the territories into zones A, B and C uh, with varied degrees of Israeli control, uh, pretty much the process broke down. And there hasn't been any discussion, uh, any discussions now since 2014. The United States has taken um, uh, has pretty much taken the side of Israel, uh, with the idea being that you know the uh, various negotiators have to gain the Israeli confidence, uh, and there's a rationale behind that because the uh, the Oslo Accord is asymmetric. Uh, it depends upon Israeli actions, not upon Palestinian actions. The Israelis have to withdraw. Uh, and so, therefore, the Israelis are the ones who actually are in the catbird seat here. They're in the driver's seat uh, of the negotiations. If they um, put up more conditions for withdrawal, uh, they uh, the Palestinians will have to meet those conditions and, or they won't withdraw. So uh, the Israelis have several times walked away from the bargaining table. The United States has not really done anything, cannot do anything. So the United States fundamentally has, you know, uh, thrown up its hands. And the last time it intervened was 2014 and said, you know, we just we just can't do anything. But I think Walt's uh, um, idea of basically the United States uh, taking the side of Israel is a valid one. And uh, I can't really disagree with that. Uh, you could look at it geostrategically and say, OK, look, the United States is the only country now that's capable of talking to both sides. Uh, and so, therefore, that's why we are the broker as opposed to the former Soviet Union being the broker. But that hasn't done very much to encourage peace uh, on uh, uh, both sides. In terms of the Oslo Accords, I just want people to realize that period in the 90s was very fraught. I mean, you had religious Zionists back then engaging in extreme violence, Berek uh, Gutstein, and of course, the assassination of uh, Yitzhak Rabin. Uh, by Yigal Amir. How important is it to note uh, that level of turbulence that was going on in the 90s? I think it's very important. Um, I think that um, there were several reasons why Oslo broke down. One of the reasons was because there were people on both sides who didn't want it to work and were uh, perfectly prepared to commit acts of terrorism to make sure that it, it did not work. There was also the asymmetry of the entire uh, Oslo Accord which meant that it was dependent upon Israeli withdrawal. There was the election time after time of right-wing Israeli governments that fundamentally uh, would pretend to be uh, sympathetic to uh, uh, making peace with the Palestinians, but didn't want to pay the price, which would have been a loss of a ruling coalition if they withdraw from the uh, withdrew from uh, the uh, territories. So. Um, the Israelis have expanded settlements since that time. They've, you know, uh, have uh, you know, committed acts of violence against the Palestinians as well. So Oslo, as I said, broke down. It really broke down in 2000 or so. And that was with the second uh, uprising against the Israelis, because this one was led by groups like the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas that, you know, basically uh, committed acts of savage te uh, uh, terrorism within Israel. And at that point, many Israelis who had been sympathetic to the Oslo Accord just threw up their hands and said, we can't make peace with these people. You know, so uh, it uh, actually uh, was uh, the uh, second intifada, the uprising was provoked um, by uh, the, the person who had become prime minister of Israel, Ariel Sharon. Um, but nonetheless, it was one of those things that created the circumstances so that the Israelis attempted to draw the borders on their own. They built the separation barrier uh, and walked away from the table. It was only after 2006 when the rockets began to fly into Israel did they realize that a barrier was not going to save them from Palestinian anger. And so therefore, uh, basically, they uh, have taken to a, a policy now with, that they call mowing the grass. 
They've lost their deterrence capability against the Palestinians. So they figure that every summer what they're going to do is go in and reduce Palestinian capabilities of, of uh, violence against Israelis by taking out weapons, stockpiles and tunnels and things like that. So they make war every summer against either Hezbollah or Hamas or both. Uh, with the idea of mowing the grass, the grass grows once again, and then they got to mow it the next year. One thing I wanted to ask you about, and I know I didn't mention it in my notes to you, but it, it keeps coming up on social media, and I see people talking about it, is um, the 2000 Camp David summit between Bill Clinton, Ehud Barak, and the then Palestinian Authority chairman, Yasser Arafat. And, and one thing I see keep coming up is you know, Arafat was given a generous offer and he walked away. And people are saying, uh, you know, if if it wasn't for Arafat doing that, we wouldn't be in this situation today. And this this is proof that the Palestinians are at fault for everything. I think that's to me, that comes off as a very biased view. But I want your take on that. Um, it, the Palestinians certainly have a certain amount of blame to take for that. Uh, Arafat walked away, as you said, uh, and there was no Palestinian counteroffer. But the deal was not a good one. Uh, it was they refused to uh, Barack refused to put it on paper, actually, for fear of his coalition. Uh, that fundamentally, uh, the Palestinians were forced to renegotiate things that they had negotiated before, when the Israelis had not kept their promises in terms of uh, withdrawal from areas of the West Bank. Um, so, uh, and frankly, you know, uh, uh, Clinton had promised Arafat that should the deal fall through, uh, that the Palestinians would not be blamed and the Palestinians were blamed immediately after. Take her to leave it. You know, uh, that was the conditions that uh, uh, Barack gave to the Palestinians. Uh, you have to take the entirety of the deal. There's no compromise on any of these issues. So the Palestinians left it uh, and walked away. Now, subsequent to that, um, there have been negotiations um, that have taken place, um, but those negotiations were, you know, also broke down. Uh, and um, some of the key issues are issues that um, are uh, unresolved to this very day. Uh, one of the things that, that people should understand is that there's an American obsession with process and uh, the idea being that once you resolve small issues, then you're going to be able to resolve bigger issues. So the idea is confidence building on both sides. So you resolve these certain small issues, and then you can get to the big issues. The problem is, is that nobody wants to address the big issues. And the big issues are issues like Jerusalem, what's going to be its fate, the uh, uh, refugees from 1948, 1967, what's going to be their fate, um, the settlements, uh, how are they going to be divided up, uh, You know, how, what territory is the Palestinians going to have, and so on and so forth. Now, um, Bill Clinton, uh, taking advantage, I guess, of his uh, nickname, Slick Willie, came up with this idea called the Clinton parameters, which probably are going to be the end game for the conflict. And the Clinton parameters are such things as, no, Jerusalem will not be divided. It will be shared. Palestinians have a right of return, but to Palestine. Yes, settlements can be maintained. Settlement blocks can be maintained, but there'll be land swaps. You know, this is the sort of thing that would be, you know, more equitable and sort of um, uh, basically uh, uh, Palestinians and Israelis who want to settle this thing could probably settle along those lines. The problem now is that there's absolutely no will to do that. There is no will for a settlement. There's no political will. There's no political will. You're absolutely right. And so the irony of this whole thing is, is that the Israelis are about to discover that there's no military solution here. If they invade Gaza, they're going to uh, end up with uh, a high casualties of their own, high casualties on the other side, become an international pariah, uh, and you know still have the problem. I mean, they can't eliminate Hamas. It's a you know organization that's got grassroots, so they eliminate the infrastructure of Hamas, and what they're going to do is face somebody else who's going to take Hamas's place. So the only solution to the political solution, and they have walked away from the bargaining table that would be able to create a political solution. Now, at the present time, of course, it's going to be very difficult to muster the uh, political will to do something like that. But even after the Easter Accords between the IRA and the British, 
um, that uh, brought about an end to the uh, conflict in Northern Ireland. Even after then, there were uh, terrorist incidents and both sides understood full well that these, these uh, incidents are designed for nothing more than to bust up the talks and to go back to war. And so they didn't fall for it. If you could elaborate on that last point you made about Hamas, you said that they can't eliminate Hamas. Um, maybe you can elaborate on why that is, because I've, I've heard certain voices say, well, you know, they could do it. This is how they could eradicate Hamas. But I myself am very skeptical of that. I'm not sure Israel can just completely eliminate Hamas. And even if they did, I think uh, something else would take its place. Well, it's very ambiguous to say eliminate Hamas. What do we mean by eliminating Hamas? Killing Hamas members? There are, you know, I don't know how many card-carrying Hamas people there are, but there are people who are dependent upon Hamas for their, you know, uh, for the charitable works that Hamas does, soup kitchens and that sort of thing. So the question then comes in, are, are, are those people culpable as well of, you know, being part of the Hamas network? Are the people who run soup kitchens, for example, under Hamas auspices, are they Hamas as well? And, you know, basically, are they going to be able to destroy the sentiment that wants to um, uh, uh, liberate Palestine and uh, uh, by um, uh, bombing uh, uh, or, or taking out Hamas members? Are they going to be able to do that? So, I mean, the, the question is, is that there's a certain ambiguity here, and it's uh, this sort of ambiguity that leads to mission creep. Um, what is the end game here? Um, what do the Israelis want out of this? Yes, they want to kill the people who are responsible for what happened on October 7th. That's understandable. But it's not going to happen in the way they envision it. If they destroy Hamas, who is going to govern uh, the Gaza Strip? Are they going to give it to the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank? And if so, what is that going to do to the legit legitimacy of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank? So it's that's not an option. The Israelis don't want to occupy Gaza. Gaza is a place they've always wanted to get out of, even after they conquered it in 1967. They didn't want it. They didn't want to keep it. They, there were plans floated immediately after the 1967 war to get out of Gaza. Uh, so basically, they don't want this territory that is very, very young, unemployed and poor. Uh, so therefore, uh, the Israelis don't want to be forced into a situation where they have to reoccupy it. So again, what, what is the end game here? Uh, a United Nations force? Who would be stupid enough to send their troops into this? The Egyptians don't want it. Um, most of the Arab world doesn't want to be seen as policing Palestinians on, on behalf of the uh, Israelis. So again, it's something that is, uh, there is no military solution here. Uh, and that the only solution is a political solution, and that is not in the cards at the present time. Just a few more brief questions. I was curious as to your opinion. You know, I know President Biden has talked a lot about we cannot give up on the two-state solution, but having followed this for a long time now, it seems like less and less people believe in the possibility of the two-state solution, and you even have people like uh, Professor Ian Lustig that are talking about a one-state reality. And I am, uh, was a big supporter of the two-state. What do you make of this talk of the one-state reality sentiment? And also, do you think there could be a reemergence of uh, the two-state solution uh, possibility? Um, I myself would favor a one-state solution. Uh, I uh, basically don't think it's possible. I don't think it probably will ever happen. And the reason for that is that fundamentally uh, the, they can't agree on little things. So how are they going to agree on large things like a constitution? How are they going to agree on citizenship and things like that? Um, so it's uh, not going to happen in that way. I mean, basically, uh, the Israelis have gone in the opposite direction in the most recent period. Uh, for example, the new nationality law in Israel, which states that uh, Israel is a Jewish state, period. Okay. Now, the real meaning for that is ambiguous, uh, but it, it certainly implies that non-Jews are second-class citizens here. Um, so the one-state solution is probably off the table. Two-state solution, um, it's probably not on the table in the short term um, or maybe even in the medium term. Um, but uh, it's a feasibility in the long term. Uh, and we have to look back at the, the attempts to actually create a one-state solution, which have been there since the British were in the mandate. 
uh, and uh, that ended up as, okay, we can't do it. It's not going to work. The two sides will not accept each other or being governed by the other side. So therefore, what we have to do is to um, divide it up into you know, uh, two, two states. I think that was ultimately what's going to happen. Uh, and as much as I would like to see a one-state solution and democratic rule in, in Palestine, the demography is such that each side claims that it will be demographically larger. So the only way they'll accept a one-state solution is if their side will be demographically superior and they will be the ones running it. That, that being said, I guess, I mean, let, let's use this to talk about um, the sort of politics in Israel of Netanyahu. I mean, I feel as if the Netanyahu government has basically shelved any possibility of a two-state for now. Uh, how important is it to understand, because we talk a lot about Hamas, but how important is it to understand um, the sort of nationalism of religious Zionists and also just the uh, figures like Netanyahu in the Likud and the role they've played in maybe exacerbating the existing problem? Well, I think the key aspect here is uh, the idea of what it means to have a coalition government in Israel. And uh, the way Netanyahu has put together his coalition is to bring together uh, the right and the far right uh, into some sort of alliance. Uh, and the far right includes people who are perfectly prepared to expel Palestinians from the West Bank, for example, um, or who are perfectly prepared to condone settler violence against Palestinians. Um, so this is, you know, the sort of situation that we're in now. Now, there's been talk about the possibility of uh, somehow finessing a um, uh, settlement is uh, in exchange for normalization of, rela of relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which would mean that Netanyahu uh, would dismiss his coalition and build a new coalition that understands the fact that, uh, number one, you can't have both normalization of relations with Saudi Arabia and a uh, uh, maintain the settlements and the West Bank the way it is today. That probably is off the table right now anyway, but uh, it demonstrates the fact that there was grasping at these straws, the idea being that um, there could be a, a settlement possible, there could be a new coalition that could be created uh, with Netanyahu, who just, you know, his entire political career right now is, is just uh, based upon staying out of prison. Um, so uh, he could still build a national coalition uh, that would be uh, made up of those people who uh, are prepared to compromise uh, in exchange for a Saudi agreement. Now, the next question I had is, and I'm not trying to ask this in a way that's politically partisan, if my listeners think that, but was there a role that the Trump presidency and the Abraham Accords and the you know changing of the, the U.S. embassy, did, did it exacerbate issues? Because I know I, I heard you say in a, a promotion for one of your books that some of Trump's decisions in regards to Israel-Palestine was going to be catastrophic. You said this a few years ago. Do you think uh, that needs to be looked back upon and reanalyzed? Well, yes, I do. Uh, do I think it has to be reanalyzed? No, I think that, you know, basically it was catastrophic. Look, I laid out three uh, foundations for Palestinian, what, what the Palestinians uh, do, uh, reasons why they commit uh, acts like were, were committed on October 7th. And one of the key issues was to keep the Palestinian question alive. They've done that very effectively since 1967. They've kept the Palestinian issue alive. Um, the Abraham Accords was fundamentally saying, uh, let's shelf the Palestinian question. Let's invite Israel into the neighborhood on, on a normal basis. And you know, fundamentally, um, if the Palestinians get screwed, well, we'll pay lip service to the Palestinians. But what's more important to us is uh, bringing Israel in from the fold, into the fold. What they're basically saying, what the Arab states are basically saying under, in the Abraham Accords is that our conflict with Iran is far more important than the conflict of Palestinians with Israel. And so therefore, we're willing to sacrifice the Palestinians in order to uh, bolster our strategic position against Iran, to bring Israel into our coalition against Iran. Now, uh, basically, the Palestinians undoubtedly reacted to that. Uh, they rejected the Trump plan for, which was basically a giveaway to, to the Palestinians. 
um, they, uh, excuse me, give away to his, the Israelis. Um, the, uh, they rejected that out of hand, and then uh, they, uh, very likely, the uh, talk of normalization and the normalizations that have taken place uh, were uh, a factor in what took place on, on October 7th. Um, the very idea that, you know, at this point, Arab states are, you know, just cannot um, uh, move in the direction of normalizing relations with Israel without suffering the consequences of what's going on on the Arab street uh, means that all further normalizations is on hold, which means that the Palestine issue is back on the agenda. In, in regards to the U.S. role that uh, can be played uh, in solving this conflict, do you see any potential for progress being made on that? Because I, I feel as if a lot of Americans, I'm not sure this is the biggest issue to them. I, I mean, I know it is for a lot of campus activists and a lot of uh, you know pro-Palestinian activists, pro-Israeli uh, activists, but I, I think that this issue in part gets put on the back burner because a lot of Americans just are not interested in the Middle East. Do you think that's part of the problem? I definitely think that's part of the problem. Um, I think that, you know, uh, what James Carvel once said, it's the economy stupid, uh, is basically going to be far more important than American policy towards Ukraine, American policy towards the Middle East, or anything along those lines. Uh, the reason why Americans uh, support uh, overwhelmingly aid to Ukraine and aid to Israel, and at the same time, Biden's popularity is in you know, down the tubes. Uh, has to do with the fact that, you know, these things, these other issues are not taken as seriously by the American electorate as um, you know, their their pocketbook and other issues as well, domestic issues and you know, cultural issues as well that could be used to inflame the polarization in the United States. Uh, before closing out, I mean, you haven't just covered Israel-Palestine, you've also covered Syria. And, you know, my heart goes out to the people um, in this region of the world, uh, there's so many horror shows going on. Do you have any hope for the future when it comes to not just Israel-Palestine, but the Middle East? What would you say to people that are interested in these topics that have, I guess, a, a level of emotional attachment um, because they have family or friends in the region? Um, what do you think? Is there any silver linings? Um, I just did another edition of my new middle east what everyone wants what everyone needs to know book and uh it was very depressing it took me a long time to finish it you know actually the nature of the middle east means that things are not going to get better if ever uh for a long time uh and it has to do with bad governments governance state breakdown uh conflict zones have expanded I mean, we're talking about conflict zones now in the Red Sea and on the Nile River, on uh, uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, so what we're seeing right now is a, a pretty much a breakdown of the uh, Middle East situation. Uh, the region is hopelessly uh, polarized between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Yes, it still is, in spite of what people call rapprochement. It's really detente. They decided to take the most inflammatory issues off the table, but they haven't agreed to disagree yet. Um, so you have that. And then on top of all that, you have a variety of, of, of environmental crises. You have global warming. You have uh, the uh, an area that is heavily dependent upon few source of, a few sources of water, for example. You have uh, an area that coastal cities are uh, built right on the ocean, uh, and uh, uh, rising tides are going to uh, inundate uh, uh, about 40 cities in the Middle East. So we're talking about an area of the world that is, you know, uh, not going to see better days, as I said, for a long time, if ever. Why, out of curiosity in that regard, what can we say about the sort of Obama administration's attempts to uh, do what's been called the Asia pivot? Can we say that that has failed or why have things not turned out uh you know, the way the Obama administration is hoped. Well, the, uh, the the pivot was a good idea. 
uh, but it depended upon uh, America lessening its footprint in the region, in the Middle East, uh, so that the United States could turn its attention elsewhere. So uh, all Obama had to do was to review, uh, re, uh, to resolve a few conflicts. Um, uh, the aftermath of the Arab uprisings of 2011, 2012, for example, uh, the um, uh, Syrian conflict, the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict, uh, which the Israelis at that time did not want to resolve. Uh, uh, the United States was never able to tamp down the flames in the Middle East. Uh, and one of the reasons why was that uh, American policy, if viewed in American terms, by the way, not in terms of peoples of the Middle East who suffered incredibly under American policy, but American uh, policy in the Middle East during the Cold War was successful in American terms uh, because we very rarely um, intervened militarily ourselves. We had a policy called offshore balancing, which is a policy of um, we will hold the coats of uh, Saudi Arabia or Israel and let them do the work for us. Uh, so that, you know, basically we're seeing a, a replay of that now with the United States steaming aircraft carriers to Israel. It's not to get involved. It's basically to say to Iran, hold your fire, stay out of this, because basically we have Israel's back. And this is what the United States did during the Cold War. It could do it then because the interests of Israel, Saudi Arabia, even Iran before 1979, were the interests of the United States to keep the status quo in place, to make sure that international communism did not spread to the Middle East. Uh, and so therefore, we were on the same page. Now we're on a very different page than these, than these governments. They've got their own uh, individual interests, uh, which is not uh, to maintain the status quo necessarily. So what we want to do is uh, uh, restore the um, uh, offshore balancing, but we're not able to restore the offshore balancing because fundamentally Saudi Arabia looks at its, its biggest problem as being Iran right now. And so therefore, you know, trying to build up an alliance system that would help it confront Iran uh, and force Iran to back down. Iran sees its biggest problem now as being the status quo. And so wherever it can, possibly, it is uh, making mischief. Let me just say one thing about this in, in relation to Hamas, though, because I've heard a lot of things about Iran and Hamas. And Iran has got various types of allies in the region. It's allied with the Syrian government, for example. It's allied with its own, it, it has set up militias, which it has used in Syria and Iraq. And Iran also is allied with outside insurgencies, including Hezbollah, uh, including Hamas, including the Houthis in Yemen. Iran has fingertip control over only one of those, and that fingertip control over the militias that is created in Iraq and in Syria. It does not have fingertip control over Hamas. It does not have fingertip control over uh, the Syrian government. The government of Syria and Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, and the Houthis act in their own best interests, and that very often co coincides with the best interests of Iran. But doesn't necessarily mean that you know the Iranians are going to be the you know uh, the ones calling the shots here. According to American intelligence, the Iranians were surprised at what uh, Hamas did on October seventh. In the same way, by the way, that the Iranians were surprised when the Houthis took over Sanaa, the capital of Yemen. Uh, they had not anticipated that, and it actually flew in the face of Iranian strategy in uh, in Yemen. Uh, so what we have to do is temper our, our comments, you know, our ideas about what Iran's abilities are and capabilities are, and temper our own feelings about, you know, the Iranian government and what it does to its own people, um, and understand that uh, this conflict, the Palestine conflict, the Israel-Palestine conflict, has really got a logic of its own. There was... One very last thing I wanted to ask you. Uh, over the years, uh, I've seen your name come up in a lot of uh, corners when it comes to Israel-Palestine, and I wanted you to be able to address um, misunderstandings uh, people may have about your positions, because I've seen your name get attacked by the sort of David Horowitz uh, right-wing crowd saying, oh, you're deeply pro-Palestinian and you're biased against the Israelis. And then I'll see pro-Palestinians, I, I think, understand you better is uh, – what I've always been told by pro-Palestinian activists and academics is that uh, your work is fairly moderate, but you're willing to humanize and, and you do have a, an understanding of the humanity of Palestinians. Uh, do you think there's any misunderstandings that both the 
pro-Israeli side and the pro-Palestinian side have about your work? I think the whole, whole idea that uh, my work is political uh, is, first of all, what does it mean to be anti-Zionist or pro-Zionist or, or something like that? I have no idea. What does it mean? I, you know, do I oppose the Netanyahu policies in vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Palestinians? You bet I do. You know, does it mean that I think that Israelis should be killed in their beds uh, like on October, October 7th? No, absolutely not. You know, does, do I think that Israel is going to just disappear in the future? No. You know, do I think there should be a just solution to the Palestinian problem? Yes, I definitely do. Um, so this whole idea of you pro-Zionist, anti-Zionist, pro-Israel, anti-Israel, I, I really fundamentally don't understand it. I view my work as not being political. I view my work as being not political at all. And, you know, the reason why I think I get a lot of flack from the right is that my work is not political. That, you know, fundamentally, I don't, I don't, didn't wake up one morning and say, hmm, I like the Palestinians, I don't like the Israelis, so I'm going to tilt my history towards the Palestinians and away from the Israelis. That's not the way we operate. The way we operate is we look at the, the long history, we look at the way things are now, and we situate it within the dynamics of the past. And the way my history works at the present time is that, do I think that you know Israel um, uh, should forego the West Bank? Yes, I do. I absolutely do. I think that this is the only route, route, route to peace at the present time. Um, do I think that you know Israel is ju uh, is justified in having a being a state in the Middle East because of its ancient habitation of the Middle East and that the restoration of that state is what's key? No, I don't believe that at all. But I do believe that Israel exists. It's a it's a fact of life. And we have to accept it as such. I don't believe that the Israeli boundaries exist as something that's fixed. And I think what we have to do is figure out exactly what those boundaries are going to be. And we also have to figure out a way of coming up with a just uh, solution to the Palestinian problem. Uh, the, the, I hate calling it the Palestinian problem because the, that seems to put the ball in their court as being a problem of uh, the Palestinian situation. Um, because, you know, fundamentally, you know, there's not going to be uh, any calming of the waters until there is a just solution to the Palestinian question. I want to thank you again, Professor James Galvin, for coming on Parallax Views. I think you're just a font of knowledge on this topic, and I hope my audience has been educated. Thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Professor James Gelvin. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerlax View to Parallax Jerlax View with Jerlax The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.